Welcome to Analyzing Finance with Nick. I'm going to bring back the iceberg series. However, instead of the iceberg of finance, we are going to be doing the iceberg of economics. And the other difference is, is that instead of me writing the iceberg myself like I did with the iceberg of finance, in this series, I found an iceberg on Reddit that somebody else made about the iceberg of economics and it does a pretty good job of covering like the different types of schools of economics and other um, economic concepts that are broad enough that I can elaborate on to add some interesting insight but specific enough to have different topics and I'm gonna use this guy's as a template or gal whoever made it because Redis is semi-anonymous, and we'll start with that. And like any other iceberg, at the top, it's the very surface level, easy stuff that most people understand. And then as you go down, it goes into the more complex and crazy ideas within the field. And just after scanning it, I have an opinion on almost every one of these. So uh, let's get started. And the first concept on the surface level is Keynesianism. Keynesianism is the economic model proposed by John Maynard Keynes, who was a famous and noteworthy British economist um, in the early 20th century. Uh, Keynesianism is the idea that the government should get involved to intervene in macroeconomics. And Keynes was one of the first truly macroeconomists, whereas most economists in the past were either microeconomists or studied what they termed political economy, which is just um, like how a specific policy would just affect a specific part of the economy. Whereas Keynes really coined the ideas of aggregate supply and demand. Um, he also uh, had proposals to believe that even in a more capitalist society, the government had a role to intervene to manage business cycles using fiscal policy. I personally am not a fan of Keynesianism in this sense because I think it is flawed to base on the morality of politicians to do the right thing, but it has nevertheless been a very influential school of economics that really dominated the mindset of policymakers from the dawn of the Great Depression until uh, inflation in the 1970s kind of started to discredit and ex Keynesianism and expose some of the flaws that Keynesianism had. Um, so now what is Keynesian in fiscal policy then? It's the idea that when the economy is struggling and private demand contracts that the government should pass stimulus policies, whether that's lowering taxes or increasing government spending on public works or social welfare or other projects, or a combination of the two to stimulate economic growth and prevent a deflationary depression. And so when times are bad, the government loosens the purse strings to help put a support an economy that lacks aggregate demand. However, the flip side that 
a lot of policymakers conveniently tend to ignore, and this is the main flaw of Keynes's. But I don't think it's really anything of Keynes's idea about using aggregate demand to smooth out business cycles is a horrible idea. But the problem is it cannot be executed because when times are good, you're supposed to, under a Keynesian model, pass fiscal austerity, which is either cutting government spending which would be my preferred way of doing it in an ideal world, or by increasing taxes, or a combination of both, to rebuild and rebalance the government's budget and build a reserve that you could use as stimulus for the next downturn. The problem is most politicians are have no problem passing the stimulus when things go down because it gives them a chance to put in all the grab back pork that they want into a bill and call it economic stimulus. But then when it comes time to tighten the purse during good economic times, uh, it's crickets. None of them ever decide to enact that side of Keynesian policy. So Keynesian policy just effectively becomes an excuse for politicians to rack up bigger deficit spending. And then post-2008, there was the idea of neo-Keynesianism that came around, which is the idea that um, the great the financial crisis caused such a big hit on people's balance sheets that the government has to go back to being aggressive and not using um, macroprudential regulations to prevent inflation, and that there's so much extra slack in the world that you could have a lot bigger of a budget than you would otherwise and you need to be more aggressive stimulus than you would otherwise and that deficits don't really matter which is like it's the only really new thing compared to old Keynesianism and that sounded great for a while but then when that was tried during the pandemic uh, you got inflation quickly after and that's the flaw of Keynesianism this was exposed in the 70s when you had a Keynesian-style spending policies such as Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and similar measures in other countries as well as the U.S. entry into the Vietnam War and it created inflation because when it was time to tighten during the good times, the governments never had the political will to do so. Uh, the next one is, I already mentioned this, is aggregate supply and demand. And it's basically the idea that there's supply and demand is the basic curve that you show the line, the upward sloping uh, supply curve and the downward sloping demand curve. And where they intersect is the market price. And you could use this for a variety of different uh, commodities or services or even the labor market to explain um, how the change in supply affects affects the price if demand is constant or vice versa. Uh, start with macroeconomists such as Keynes is the idea of aggregate supply and demand that there's a total amount of goods and services supplied in the economy and total amount of demand based on the purchasing power of consumers and the willingness of governments and businesses to spend and invest and you can build policy models based on influencing not just demand for an individual product or service or affecting the supply for a specific industry, product, or service, but you can do it 
for the entire economy in the form of aggregate supply and aggregate demand. It's pretty simple. The next one is GDP. GDP stands for Gross Domestic Product. Uh, that's just the amount of economic output adjusted for inflation in the case of real GDP, non-adjusted for inflation for nominal GDP that is produced in a country in terms of goods and services in a given year. The net amount of money spent uh, is the GDP. So, and the way that a lot of economies are measured for success is the GDP, or particularly the real GDP growth rate. So, and also the absolute level. And then it's just terms of like how much political power and influence. Like people think China is a threat simply because it has the second largest GDP in the world, based at least on their government's calculations. Uh, however, to really measure the true prosperity of a country, the better metric is GDP per capita, which is the amount of economic output produced divided by the number of people in the country's population. And as you would expect, the most successful developed countries are the ones with the highest GDP per capita, and some of the poorest countries in the world have the lowest GDP per capita. And the thing is, using not GDP on an absolute basis is misleading because, like, a poor, poor country such as India, which has a fairly low standard of living, yet ranks in the top 10 in global GDP simply because it has over 1.3 billion people. Um, and so it adjusts for country size which I think needs to be factored in when it comes to these type of things. The next one I'm going to talk about is econometric. Econometrics is the idea of trying to use mathematical and empirical testing to verify economic theories to see if they actually work in real life. As somebody who has an economics major in university, and have several friends with masters or above degrees in economics. The one thing in the field that frustrates a lot of people is, is it a social science or is it a hard science? Uh, a lot of economists would like to have it be a more of a hard science and treat it such a way because it boosts their credibility. Because a flaw in a lot of economics, particularly in macroeconomics, which I did a video about this, which I'll link in the description, is the idea that macroeconomics is really just the mathematical and eloquently written explanation for why a politician wants to pursue a certain policy and depending on how the government feels about its economic policy they will promote economists or have them serve as advisors on presidential campaigns or work at think tanks that back the economic policy that the politicians or the administration in power wants them to. So in order to get to try to distance their theories and ideas away from being the rubber stamp of any particular policy uh, agenda, whether it comes from the left or the right, you try to create and become more scientific to separate it from the world of sociology. And that is econometrics. And you, instead of the problem is is that you can do microeconomic experiments like in a double-blind controlled way on a university campus, but for more macroeconomics, 
it's difficult to do clinical trials in the same way you do in other sciences. So instead, you just look up data um, in different countries or regions and try to use one of them as the control and the other one as the experimental and to see like what the true effect is of a certain economic policy or a certain economic trend impacts it. And it uses a lot of statistics and linear regressions and correlation analysis to sort this out and to figure out what's actually significant and what is actually noise. Uh, the flaw in econometrics is that it may show spurious correlations. The typical correlation is not causation, is a, generally a common refute of econometrics. But despite really, and also the fact there's just not enough observations or sample size given just, there's not that many macroeconomic samples for every sort of hypothetical scenario you want to test. However, with the advent of big data and um, easier ways to just compute that data just with technology advancing and just the internet keeping track of more and more transactions. I think the efficacy of econometrics is going to continue to improve over time. And I actually generally tend to be a fan of economists trying to quantify because if we could get real results, not spurious correlations, but if we can use statistical analysis of diverging economic policies to generate better outcomes, it means a, a rising living standard for everyone. So that's my thoughts on econometrics. Next I'm going to talk about the Phillips curve. The Phillips curve is an economic theory that has generally been proven not to work, but it keeps getting resurrected after every business cycle is the idea that there is a stable and inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. And so therefore when the job market is hot and unemployment is low, that will trigger inflation because a higher level of aggregate employment creates higher aggregate demand and supply doesn't rise fast enough and that's what causes inflation. Uh, whereas you have on the other side when economic times are tough and there's less people employed, that reduces demand because people are out of the job and therefore they can't afford to buy stuff. And also it depresses wages because it's hard to negotiate a higher wage when you can have plenty of qualified unemployed people who can, or underemployed people who can replace you. The flaw really, again, is similar to the flaw of Keynesianism was stagflation in the 70s when you had both high unemployment and high inflation at the same time, which to me kind of discredited uh, the Phillips curve. And we've even currently now, you've seen times of disinflation and inflation trending down, but the unemployment rate going down with it. Uh, this happened in the late 2010s, for example. And so that is the flaw of it. In theory, it makes sense, especially on the downside. Uh, however, there are other things that drive inflation, such as money supply and regulatory environment that restrict increasing supply, like such as what's going on with the housing supply in many developed countries in the world right now, which I think are far more powerful than the employment variable 
when it comes to inflation. So that's why I generally discount the Phillips curve. Next is neoclassical economics and the neoclassical uh, synthesis. Classical economics is the idea, especially in macroeconomics, is that the rules of microeconomics apply to macroeconomics and that most businesses and individuals and governments are entirely rational and will make the decision that makes sense to maximize their utility. And Keynesianism brought, and this is a, one of the more, I think, accurate and positive contributions that Keynes had, was that he brought in the idea of animal spirits, really, in a way. It's the idea that, especially in investments, but in other assets too, and goods and services, like the economy can be irrational. Uh, Keynes is actually famous for his comment on short selling uh, that the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, which is a very astute quote. And it's the idea that that is what the problem with classical economics is just assume that everybody always acts rationally all the time. And also the other thing that Keynesians challenged the classical economists on was the idea that bigger aggregates, supply and demand, and also governments don't apply to the same rules that individuals, small businesses do in the sense that they have to balance a budget and they have certain limitations uh, in terms of spending and borrowing. So that is the, um, the other dynamic that the Keynesians challenged. Well, the synthesis is the idea when Keynesianism was as credibility started to come on the rocks with the stagflation in the 70s, that you could take parts of both the classical model and the Keynesian model to create a neoclassical view of economics that was more accurate than both of the previous two worldviews. Examples of provisions in this is that people are generally rational enough that microeconomics in the classical sense remains applicable. And businesses are rational enough, so the aggregate supply generally follows a rational utility maximizing framework. Uh, and animal spirits, however, still do matter, and especially in the capital markets. And it has to be applied to certain parts of the economy that are more prone to animal spirits. Uh, the idea also of sticky wages, the idea that um, even if you have the price level drop, it doesn't mean that people are going to accept a wage cut. If, say if the price level drops 5%, people will still not accept a 2% wage cut. It's the idea that wages are sticky. They only ratchet one way, which is higher, and the way to the lower real wages is via inflation, where inflation is higher than your wage growth, and that's how you adjust for that imbalance. And then it's the idea that um, there's sometimes a lag in the balance of supply and demand. It's not immediate, but it will eventually, in the classical way, rebalance if there's not a policy that blocks it. And also it's the idea, they employ some of the ideas of monetarism, which we're going to get into later. And so that's what neoclassical economics was. And that's kind of the economics that I was primarily taught in my undergraduate education before the financial crisis. 
the next concept we're going to talk about is, uh, in this chapter, is capitalism. Capitalism, for really to keep things simple, is the idea that we have a economy with a free market and that resources are distributed based on who supplies what the most people demand or what is most valued in the economy. Capitalism is amoral in the sense that the market doesn't have to supply what is the morally right outcome. Like, for example, look at a lot of the morally distasteful industries in the world that are yet very wealthy and very successful uh, because there are people who demand it whether we believe that it is right or wrong. I'm not going to get into specifics because this isn't analyzing philosophy with Nick, but you get my idea. And capitalism historically is the way to maximize wealth on the aggregate. Uh, the main flaw that people have with capitalism is that it generally leads to very unequal and usually outright Pareto-based distributions where those who are on the losing end of the Pareto curve tend to think is unfair. Uh, but yeah, capitalism is basically a free market. It's what people believe like America is, whereas America really is a mixed economy that has some capitalist side and some government regulated side, which is more socialistic in nature. But yeah, capitalism is basically the idea of having a free market decide the allocation of goods and services and the distribution of wealth in society. And then the last thing we are going to talk about here is CPI and CPIU. CPI is just the consumer price index, which is the measure of inflation that the government uses. And CPIU is really just CPI for urban consumers. And in most developed countries where the urban population is over 85% of the total population, that's what people use as a metric. And what they do is they take a basket of goods and services and see how the change in those prices are over time. And just and that is your cumulative inflation over that period of time. This is usually measured year over year. So if the basket is $100 at the end of 2022, and at the end of this year it's now 105 then the CPI inflation rate is 5%. And there's two types of CPI. There's headline CPI, which includes food and energy, which are more volatile than the other parts of the inflation metrics. And they are combined about 15% of the basket. And then you have core CPI, which excludes food energy due to the intense volatility of commodity prices which skew inflation. Uh, I think CPI, the way it's calculated, has a lot of flaws. First, it underestimates uh, the degree of inflation in the housing market because it uses a flawed metric called owner's equivalent rent, where the surveyors will call people and ask, like, homeowners, if you were to rent out your house, what would you rent it for? And if you're an owner-occupier, you don't really think about that. And so that data can be stale, and it's also heavily lagging. Uh, compared to looking at tracking asking rents, 
or agreed upon rents or housing transactions, which are probably a more accurate real time. And due to this lag, it overestimates um, inflation when housing markets fall and rents fall and we have a recessionary environment. It And it underestimates inflation most of the time when the economy is good and housing prices and rents are rising. Uh, and housing is 41% of core CPI. So is really messes with it and their cumulatively inflation has probably been much higher simply because of this calculation error. And they also just these blind surveys relatively in analog ways in a world where you get digital prices tends to just be flawed for a lot of the other components where you should use more accurate private sector data. This is actually a service that I provide for my research clients where I create my own alternative headline and core CPIs based on using more private sector data and comparing it to the government's amounts. Uh, and I think and the reason I go on my way to do this is because of some of the calculational flaws in the CPI. The idea of measuring inflation is important. Uh, there's a lot of conspiracies that the CPI is even way higher than even my estimates are and that they're just systematically getting poorer as a way to prevent COLA payments for Social Security and government payrolls from increasing too high for the government to manage. But I talked about like the truth of inflation in a different video where I elaborate more on a lot of this. But that's the bottom line of CPI. It's just the way you measure inflation. It's a flawed metric. Uh, I think the weights that they use are fairly accurate. I just don't trust how they get the inputs. Uh, that includes part one, the surface level. Uh, we're going to keep diving deeper into this iceberg. Let me know what you think about the iceberg of economics. If you think this stuff's really dull, I could stop it here. But based on the reactions to the iceberg of finance, I think you will particularly enjoy as we get deeper into the rabbit hole. Thank you for watching and make sure to like and subscribe and share this if you want me to do more icebergs.